Hi everybody, Producer Tin here. You are in for a treat. This session is great. On the fourth and final day of The World Transformed, what better time to talk about making every weekend a bank holiday. Now the bad news. As the talk starts, there is a sort of off-putting high screech in the background. Basically, it was caused by a broken microphone somewhere. But there are reasons to be cheerful. One, it gets turned off after two minutes, so if you can power through that bit, then you'll come out into a land of superb sound quality. Two, I've managed to remove most of the noise in EQ, so if you can still hear it, congratulations. You've clearly got some good quality headphones. Um, Grand. So if you appreciate these recordings, please do share them. Um, And yeah, before we get on with the show, I've got one more proposition for you. So this was the first year that we've put a decent number of these recordings up. But basically, it was just me running around with my own gear. Uh, I usually recorded two sessions at once. But guess what? At any time, at any one time, we had up to 10 sessions running concurrently. So some of those got videoed. And you can find a lot of those on Navarra Media's YouTube page, for instance, and our own one. But most of them were sadly missed. Now, next time... Well, first of all, we want to empower people to organise TWT in their own towns and make them exciting and out of the ordinary. So all that buzz and all them conversations that got sparked off in bars and pubs around Hull and Liverpool this year could be happening in, like, I don't know, Keith Lee, like, Carla, Shrewsbury. um, Sorry, I'm not going to just start naming English towns, I sound like. Pete Doherty or something but specifically yeah it could happen wherever it's basically across the country and specifically I also think it would be so valuable if we could record all of those sessions so that everybody that went along could share it with their friends and colleagues afterwards Um, there's so much like intellectual life in this movement right now and people in the wider country are pissed off like hardly anybody likes things the way they are now but how often do you actually get to hear about the possibility of an alternative? Like, the biggest danger our movement faces is not people loving neoliberalism. It's that fatalism that says, you know, there is no alternative. Or if there is an alternative, it's like some sort of return to the 70s. The bad decade. So basically, if you want to help make that happen, one really helpful concrete thing that you could do is go to theworldtransformed.org and give us a little bit of money. So uh, The World Transformed is a like 90% volunteer-run organisation uh, and we're all happy to do our bit, you know, it's for the revolution and all that. But we do need a bit of infrastructure and that does cost money. So for less than a grand next year, we could get our hands on enough sound recorders, cables wireless modems and whatnot so that we could upload every single session that happens here uh we could mash up the clips into little bite-sized pieces so they reach a larger audience there's tons of like creative things as well we could do with a bigger team you know best of type content this sort of thing a bit more sort of curated stuff as well as just putting the shows up uh you know the sessions up which i think is always going to be our bread and butter um so yeah, we could do that with very small amount of money, basically, but it does need some money. So uh, to put it in context, Radio 4, I've just looked up as an operating budget of £90 million per year. 
for a grand, we could get up about 200 hours worth of content that's already happening. We just need to get it up there and get it shareable. That has got to be worth it, I think. So theworldtransform.org, if you can, you know, I think it's it's a good place to put a little bit of money. Right, on with the session. Don't worry, the annoying screechy noise goes away after two and a half minutes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the four-day week session on the final day of this uh, brilliant festival, uh, the World Transform, the third iteration of the World Transform. This is the third session Autonomy has co-run, um, and it's a session run in collaboration with the four-day week campaign. I recommend you go check out their website, um, and also the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation in Berlin. We're grateful to them. Quick show of hands. Who wants, who desires a shorter working week without a loss in pay? Okay, who thinks it's possible? We're gonna have a good session. It's gonna be, it's, it's gonna be good. <laughs> okay, so, I think it's really, I mean, as you can see from our, raise, our range of speakers, um, there's a growing consensus uh, that really the, the debate around the shorter working week is not should we have one, rather how are we gonna do it? exactly what policies are we going to use to shorten the working week and how can we make sure that employers don't abuse um, their, the shorter working week to just make workers worse off? How can we make it uh, beneficial to workers? How can we frame the debate in that way? And to that end, we have, uh, I'm proud to present um, our panel. We have <laughs> Sorry, we have Alice Martin from um, I lost, I forgot you were there. Uh, Alice Martin from the New Economics Foundation. We have Karis Roberts from IPPR. We have who works on care work, automation policies around that. I look forward to hearing about that. We have David Graeber, an anthropologist. I'm sure you're aware of his work, the recent Bullshit Jobs book, for example. Got a fan. <laughs> uh, we have Aidan Harper, who is who runs the the four day week campaign. Uh, we have Katja Kipping, who is leader of the De Linke party uh, in Germany, Germany's leading left party. And Lauren, her translator. My name is Will. I co-run Autonomy, a, a think tank all, around, all about the future of work. Uh, to that end, uh, I think the order is going to be Aidan, Karis, Alice, Katja, David. The format is going to be short presentations, followed by a Q&A in this kind of Goodfellas arranged kind of table format, which I quite like. Um, okay, Aidan, should, 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 should we start? Oh, so uh, we'll get the, get the presentation up. Anyway, um, my name is Aidan. Uh, I'm a member of the Four Day Week campaign. We're a national campaign for a collective reduction in working time to a four-day, 32-hour week or any equivalent variation. I'm here to provide the broader case for work time reduction. I will make the case that work time reduction can, and indeed should, be at the heart of any progressive political program in Europe today. I hang my case for a shorter working week of four main points. The economy, gender equality, society, health and well-being, and the environment. I've tried to find a picture I can riff off for this talk and I stumbled across this photograph from 1976. The image is titled, A Woman Relaxes in a Hammock During Her Lunch Break in Liverpool, which is obviously very fitting for this session. It carries a powerful irreverence, I find, appealing. 
seeing that she has strung the hammock up between these two austere statues of past royalty. But importantly, it represents a powerful visual display of resistance to the always-on culture of overwork. The idea that we are merely fleshy machines designed to spend as much time at work as possible before we eventually die. It offers an alternative vision of a society which prioritizes time outside of work, where possible, and to care for our children, our elderly parents, to educate ourselves, to pick up new hobbies, and yes, to rest. Intuitively, we all know that there is something deeply wrong with the structure of working time in the UK, but it is important to pick apart why that is and what advantages a four-day week would bring. To begin with, there are powerful social reasons as to why we should all work less. We currently suffer from a crisis in overwork, and work is quite literally making us ill. In fact, work-related stress is the biggest cause of sick leave in the UK, and by some distance. And the biggest cause of work-related stress is overwork. The move to a shorter working week could help the UK improve the health of workers and the success of businesses. Poor mental health at work is estimated to cost employers between 33 to 42 billion pounds a year, or almost 2% of GDP. Additionally, 300,000 people move out of work due to poor mental health on a yearly basis. A move towards a shorter working week could reduce stress and increase productivity, as well as enabling a better quality of rest and recuperation, which could in turn limit mental fatigue and lead to fewer sick days. Lower levels of work-related mental distress would also reduce associated burdens on the NHS. The time we spend in work is neither natural nor inevitable. Instead, the amount of time we spend in work is a political question. One of the central aims of this presentation is to establish time itself as a site of political contestation in the same vein as housing, healthcare, or income. The amount of time we spend in work varies widely across countries and has fluctuated widely over time. From working a similar number of hours per year, the amount of workers in the UK, USA, Germany, and France spending work has diverged significantly. Here, we can see working time diverging widely from a similar starting point in 1980 to where they are now. We can see that in 1980, the US and Germany worked very similar hours. From that point on, however, Germany's working time continued to decrease rapidly, whilst work time reduction in the US has flatlined completely. Within Europe, we can also see this variance, with Greece working the most amount of hours, whilst the likes of Germany, the Netherlands, and Norway work far fewer hours per person. Here, we've mapped the number of hours a country works onto their levels of GDP per capita. The blue line represents the number of hours worked per worker in each country, as per the previous slide. The green bars represent that country's GDP per capita. We can see, for example, that Greece, at the top there, worked the highest number of hours per person and also has the lowest amount of GDP per capita, whilst the likes of Germany, the Netherlands, and Norway work the fewest hours and have the highest levels of wealth per person. So what do these graphs show us? International comparisons demonstrate that there is no clear positive correlation between working more hours and creating a strong economy. In fact, the opposite appears to be the case. Countries who work fewer hours tend to have higher levels of productivity as well as greater amounts of wealth per person. So, why do countries who work fewer hours tend to have stronger economies? Do fewer hours spent in work directly lead to greater amounts of work, wealth? I'll seek to make the case that they do, 
and in fact, there is a direct link between working less and having a strong economy. As we've already seen across the world's richest countries, higher productivity correlates with lower working hours. Fatigue from working long hours is linked with poor learning capacity and decreased productivity. Adequate leisure and rest can improve a worker's mental and physical health so that they will be more relaxed and alert and thereby improve their productivity. Moreover, several studies point out that overwork can lead to serious accidents or diagnostic errors. It can be deadly. Researchers found that hospital interns make five times as many diagnostic errors when working excessively long weeks compared to normal working hours. This brings us back to the 1970s for a brief anecdote. Two years before this photo was taken, in 1974, the UK actually moved to a three-day week. For the first two months of 1974, the Conservative government under Edward Heath imposed a three-day week to save energy during a time of soaring inflation, high energy prices and industrial action. A general election was held at the end of February and the Tories were booted out of power. A deal was struck with the miners and the three-day week was officially ended in March. When the crisis ended, something fascinating happened. Analysts found that industrial production had dropped by only 6%, rather than the expected 40%. This was explained by a rapid improvement in productivity, combined with a drop in, absent, drop in absenteeism, which had made up the difference. Now, what I'm not arguing for is anything like this. A sudden and unplanned move to short working week in times of economic crisis, in which more than 1.5 million people registered as unemployed. But the fact that, even under these vastly imperfect conditions, industrial production barely dropped, demonstrates that even in 1974, the productive capacity to move towards a vastly reduced work week was there. Since then, productivity has increased by a factor of nearly 2.5, and yet we barely work any less. Clearly, we have the capacity to significantly reduce our working week now. The main barriers are not te technological or economic, but political. This is all linked to the past, present, and future impacts of automation and the associated increases in productivity, which will be discussed by other speakers. Returning to the photograph, it was taken in 1976, which was during the longest heat, heat wave on record in the UK. The longest one we've had since then was the one we've just had this summer. However, this summer's heat wave, which seared all of Northern Europe, was different not least because, according to scientists, it was made more than twice as likely by climate change. Climate change is an existential threat, and we are way, way off getting anywhere near addressing it with current levels of carbon emissions. But the four-day week holds part of an answer here. Work time reduction has a variety of significant positive impacts on the, on the environment. A number of studies have attempted, the impact, have attempted to model the impact of reduced hours on carbon emissions they have found that there's a close link between high working hours and energy-intensive, environmentally damaging patterns of consumption. Countries with lower working hours tend to have lower carbon footprints, lower ecological footprints, and lower carbon dioxide emissions. One comprehensive study looked at the relationship between working hours and greenhouse gas emissions and found that a 1% decrease in working hours was followed by a 0.8% decrease in emissions. Based on this assumption, the general movement towards a four-day week would result in an accompanying reduction of 16% of carbon emissions without any other changes to the economy. In a happy coincidence, those environmentally friendly soft activities, such as exercising, socialising and investing in personal education, 
are also likely to improve well-being across the population. In the US, despite having grown up with more affluence, young Americans are more likely to have slightly less happiness and a much greater risk of depression and assorted social pathology than their grandparents. This focus on material goods and short-term rewards has led to a form of consumer culture which has had a corrosive impact on our collective sense of well-being, as well as having a catastrophic environmental impact. There is an urgent case here to be made for a major shift in consumer behaviour. An emerging and powerful line of argument as to why we should work less comes from reasons of gender and class. This comes from an analysis that unpaid care work is unevenly distributed across the economy, across gendered lines. The majority of unpaid domestic care work in the UK is done by women. In the UK, women do 74% of all childcare and on average 26 hours of unpaid domestic labour a week. A shorter working week can help to redistribute unpaid work more evenly between men and women. So what does the future of work look like? I've made the case for a transition towards a four-day week. A reduction in work time is entirely feasible within current levels of technology. The benefits for society, for gender equality, for the economy and the environment can be significant. The time we spend in work is neither natural nor inevitable. It is a political question which must be organised and fought for. It is time we built a world where we work so that we can live, rather one where we live to work. It is time that we demanded a four-day week. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Aidan. That was great. Very clear, very powerful case. Karis. Okay. Um, so I'm Karis, and I'm a senior economist at IPPR. And thanks very much for having me here today. Um, so at IPPR, I've been working on the Commission on Economic Justice. I think the session on that has actually just finished immediately before this one. Yeah, can you hear me now? Brilliant. <laughs> um, so my work is kind of at the intersection of technological change, uh, social reproduction, and how those two things relate to the economy. Um, and in particular, I think what's interesting is that actually our social structures tend to match the economy of the time. So if we look back at the 20th century, the idealized version of care in particular was that women did housework. And in reality, that isn't necessarily what happened. Lots of working class women were going out to work as well. But the idealized version was that you had a male breadwinner who had a family wage. And actually, that was used in the argument for a family wage. Um, and the social security system matched that. And then since the 80s, we've had the rise of the two-earner model, uh, where both people are expected to go out to work. Uh, perhaps best epitomized for me that in the fact that the age at which single parents have to go out to work to receive benefits has come down quite drastically. And you see this shift towards people being expected to do paid work rather than unpaid work. And the reason I mention this is that at the moment we have a perfect storm. Um, so in particular, we have an aging population. Uh, okay. Well, we can have, we'll have the discussion later about that. Is that okay? Interested to what you, what you mean, but we, the population is currently aging. We have a growing uh, set of care needs. Um, and we have road back state support for care. So that is causing a real crisis, particularly when we're still pushing people into work. Um, we don't have the capacity to care for particularly older people, as that's increasing. 
And in one way, that's actually quite exciting because the capitalist model is predicated on uh, the provision of care within the family and the fact that that's no longer working means that we have a point of inflection where we can use that crisis to achieve change. So what could come out of that crisis? Well, you could have people work in the double shift, you could have a dehumanized care system, but I think a four-day week is a really interesting response to that crisis of time and that crisis of care. Uh, in particular, giving people the time that they uh, want to care for their families, for relatives, or perhaps not their families. Uh, someone said to me this week, what if you hate your family? <laughs> it might be that we can move towards more kind of community models of care, but the key should be how do we enable that human interaction um, and enable the time to, time to have it. So I think this is where the four-day week is really interesting for the care question. Um, I did want to say some caveats, though, about how we make that a good thing. So, importantly, the four-day week shouldn't be about taking people's paid work away so that they can spend lots of time doing unpaid work that they don't want to do. This has got to be about enabling choice, um, so enable people who want to care for their relatives and friends to do that. Um, and it has to be about equalizing time spent caring between men and women. Uh, so some of the stats that Aidan was referring to there at the moment, that's really unequally distributed. Uh, so it's important that those things happen. The other caveat I'd say is that there's a big question about pay in the, the lowest pay people in Britain uh, want more hours, not less at the moment. Um, so it should be about redistributing hours to those who need them while also pushing for higher pay at the same time so that this can be enabled for everybody. So those, that's a few of the benefits, particularly relating to care. But crucially, the other element of our work that I wanted to mention was on automation, because automation means that the four-day working week or reduced working time in whatever form is now actually within our grasp. And again, this is some of what Aidan was talking about. So at IPPR, we've looked at automation in the debates, and obviously you see all the scare stories about mass joblessness. We don't think that that's likely to happen anytime soon if we don't do anything. Uh, because the economy and society is very good at creating new jobs. Um, we think of new jobs all the time, and when jobs are automated, the demand is redistributed to other elements of the economy. Um, so we don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But that doesn't mean it's not possible. What if instead of being scared of a kind of a workless future, we actually said we should be using this opportunity to uh, reduce our working hours? So the future is not technologically determined. That was the kind of key argument of our work in that area. It's ours to create, and part of that could be reducing working hours. In particular, when there are productivity benefits, we assume that they should always lead to higher wages, more consumption. Uh, actually, we could accept the same wages and say, actually, we're going to uh, work less and have more time for life, um, not just care, but life in general and whatever people want to do with that time. So. That's not going to happen with the current narratives going on in politics, not on the left. Um, we pedestal work, paid work in particular, as something that is uh, always desirable and that everybody should do. Um, and that's why I think, agreeing with Aidan, we need a politics of time, and it's urgent that we do that. Someone said to me today that time is the most important commodity, um, and yet we never talk about it. 
But what if a progressive government, a Labour government, um, could deliver reductions in the working week and enable time for life outside of work? That would actually probably have a much bigger impact on people's living standards, um, on the kind of society we have, than lots of the other radical policy proposals on the table. So I'm really excited to see this uh, discussed today. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. Hi, um, so I'm Alice, I work at the New Economics Foundation and I want to talk a bit about, uh, well, first of all, the New Economics Foundation's approach to this, this whole area has been running um, for quite a number of years. About 10 years ago, we put out some research uh, which later was responded to by the Institute of Economic Affairs with a paper titled, I've written this down, Shorter Working Week When Paternalism Meets Bogus Economics. Um, that was in 2010, I believe. And the papers, it's quite funny, it's not very long. I implore you all to read it. Um, one of the arguments that's actually made in there is the idea that if we have a shorter working week, you know, the argument that we want to spend more time with our family isn't a good one if we don't like our family. So I don't know if that was someone you were speaking to today. Uh, <laughs> but the, the general, um, the fact that this paper was written, I think, uh, shows that probably people who've been talking about the shorter working week are onto something good, we're onto something interesting, and we should keep pushing for it. Um, I think the arguments have been largely discredited now. There's a, there's a there's a, a growing consensus behind the kind of um, economic arguments for a shorter working week, as Aidan outlined and, and Karis has just um, built upon. But aside from that, I think there's, a, there's an important kind of political um, space opening up. And I want to kind of dwell just briefly on the title of that IEA paper and the accusation of paternalism, because I believe that there is something quite interesting there, which is if we are to politicize the, the space of, uh, of, of work time or, or time in general, how is that going to happen or how is it already happening? Is it the space, is it, is it the role of government or the state to kind of legislate for us to all have more time off? Or is it something that working people and, and trade unions um, should, should be fighting for and actually I believe the latter is the case, and a lot of that work is being done. I mean, historically, trade unions have been the home of the politicization of, of work time. Obviously, we won the weekend, we won the eight-hour working day. Um, and now these kind of disputes are taking place here in the UK and also in, in Germany, and big gains are being won. So you might have heard of the EG Metal. Am I saying that right, Katja? EG uh, Metal. Uh, win recently, which is uh, it's one of the largest industrial unions in Europe. It represents over 2 million metal workers in Germany, and they just secured a 28-hour working week for their, for their workers with a pay rise of 4%. And interestingly, within that deal, there is the option for workers to take an additional eight days leave annually in order to spend more time at home and care for their loved ones. I believe only two of those days would be paid, which is potentially problematic, but two additional paid leave days on top of a shorter working week with the recognition built in that people really need more time outside of work to be doing the things that, that matter to them and that ultimately are contributing to society at large, um, I think is a, is a really exciting 
development. And here in the UK, there's the Communication Workers Union who represent uh, postal workers and other workers in the communication sector who have been arguing and, and campaigning for shorter working week for their members in the face of um, automation and mechanization of part of the, the postal service. And they've won, um, they've won some concessions already and, the, and they're keeping up that fight and they're kind of popular, popularizing the discussion now among their members, but more broadly. Um, similarly, ASLEF and the RMT unions representing transport workers are, are making, making the case as well that if part of our services are being, uh, or if part of the role of their workers is, is being automated, why then are those workers not uh, getting more time off? How do we, how do we square that circle? Um, and they are making gains there. Obviously, the TUC coming out in support of this um, policy as well is a great signal that this is moving into the mainstream. Um, but I think it's, a, it's an important question for us to think about this, this issue of or this accusation of paternalism, because it's not clear to me what the role necessarily of government or the state is in ensuring that we get to a place where... Is that okay? <laughs> Thank you. Hello? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so in my opinion, the, the, the role of, of government really is to empower and in, increase the capacity of, of workers to organize in unions or, or otherwise informally um, to win collective agreements over their time. But surely there are also things that can come directly from government to, to enable this to happen at, at, a, at a larger scale, at, at, the, at the level of the sort of national economy. Um, and I think it's interesting that this week the Labour Party have come out with a proposal to seed fund uh, renters' unions, which is, a, is a, an interesting approach to policy making where you're kind of endorsing something which is actually outside of your own kind of remit, um, but you're, they're signalling that actually support for this kind of democratisation of a space um, that is affecting particularly young people today. Is, is a kind of, it's a role that the Labour government can play. Um, and I think something similar could work uh, in this area. Um, there's also the obvious kind of need to repeal anti-union law. Um, potentially, a shorter working week could be piloted in, in public services. Um, and generally ensuring that, as Caris mentioned, those on insecure contracts and those on the lowest pay don't miss out from this kind of move towards a shorter working week because it's not obvious for people who are currently not even enjoying the weekend or not having the kind of fixed eight-hour day, how they would benefit from uh, a kind of shorter working week overall. Um, so I think that's a, a question for all of us um, to grapple with. Uh, but yeah, really the question I want to put back to the room for the discussion is how do we, evolve, how do we avoid a kind of paternalistic approach to, to work time and ensure that this is a kind of political space um, and the fight for free time, which is a term that Helen Hester's used, is kind of one um, from the bottom up. Yeah, thank you, Alice. Kind of, you know, we've got the ideas. Let's let's actually um, put power to workers to kind of uh, put it into practice. Katya, you're going to stand. Hello, everybody. I'm very glad to be here with you. And now I will shift to my mother language. 
Ich freue mich sehr, dass ihr dieses wichtige Thema Kampf um Arbeitszeitverkürzung hier stark macht. Das ist ja ein aktuelles Thema, was zugleich eine sehr lange linke Tradition hat. Schon Karl Marx sagte, Ökonomie der Zeit, darin löst sich alle Ökonomie auf. I'm very happy to be discussing this very uh, important topic of reducing working hours, which is both very current, but also has a very long history in left-wing debates and, and movements. Karl Marx himself, and pardon me, I'm going to butcher this, I wasn't able to check my collected works before we started, but <laughs> Karl Marx himself uh, once said that the economy of time is uh, the question in which all political problems uh, are, are resolved. Einen kurzen Überblick über den Debattenstand und die Erfahrungen in Deutschland. Vor rund 15 Jahren hatte es, haben es die Kämpfe für Arbeitszeitverkürzung extrem schwer gehabt. Das lag unter anderem daran, dass die Schröder-Regierung, das war so das deutsche Pendant zu Tony Blair, New Labour, dass die auf Prekarisierung und Entsicherung gesetzt haben, Niedriglohn vorangebracht haben. Und es ist ja sehr, sehr klar, dass wenn Leute sozusagen nur Minijobs haben und von ihrem Lohn nicht leben können, dass dann Fragen wie Arbeitszeitverkürzung sehr schwer haben. So, to maybe give you a little bit of insight into the debate in Germany or the situation in Germany, 15 years ago, the question of reducing working hours, the struggle for reduced working hours was very difficult. Uh, at that point, we had the Schroeder government, who was kind of the uh, counterpart to the Blair government here, uh, who set forth a wave of, of uh, precarization, of creating so-called mini-jobs. Uh, and of course, when people are struggling to survive and struggling to make enough to find a job and make enough to, to live, then the question of reducing working hours is not really in the foreground. Ein Gründungsimpuls meiner Partei war genau diese ähm, Politik der Prekarisierung zu bekämpfen und dem stattdessen den Kampf für gute Arbeit und soziale Garantien entgegenzusetzen. So one of the, sort of the founding impulses of my party, Die Linke, was to take up the struggle against precarization and uh, oppose it with an alternative view of just and fair labor. Ich weiß nicht, wie vertraut ihr mit der deutschen Parteienlandschaft seid, deswegen kurz Memo zu meiner Partei. Wir haben im Bund 10 Prozent, sind in drei Landesregierungen beteiligt und sind eng verankert mit antirassistischen und sozialen, bei antirassistischen und sozialen Bewegungen. So I don't know how much you know about German politics, but my party gets about 10 Prozent in the national elections. We participate in three state governments and we are closely connected to both social and anti-racist movements. Mm -hmm. Und ähm, unser Programm macht sich stark für die 30-Stunden-Woche. Kann man auch gut aufteilen in eine Viertageswoche. Uh, our party platform calls for a 30-hour work week, which could easy, or easily be divided into four working days. Uns geht es bei dem Kampf um die 30-Stunden-Woche auch immer um eine Umverteilung der Tätigkeiten zwischen denjenigen, die zu viel arbeiten und denjenigen, die zu wenig haben, aber auch um eine Umverteilung zwischen den Geschlechtern, damit im Leben von Männern wie Frauen gleichermaßen Zeit ist für die vier wichtigen Tätigkeiten Erwerbsarbeit, Familienarbeit, politische Einmischung, aber eben auch Zeit für Muße bleibt. Um, so When we call for, a when we call for reducing uh, the working week in our party platform, we call for redistribution of working hours, both between people who work too much and people who don't have enough work, but as well between the genders, so that both men and women have equal amounts of time for the four main spheres of, of activity, which are uh, reproductive labor, wage labor, political work, and free time. Yeah? yeah. Leisure, yeah. Leisure, okay, yeah. <laughs> 
Und das Ganze ist philosophisch oder theoretisch inspiriert durch das Werk von Frika Haug, einer feministischen einer Marxistin. Sie nennt das die Firmen-Ein-Perspektive und ihre Idee ist eine Gesellschaft, wo wirklich Männer wie Frauen gleichermaßen viel Zeit haben, also am Tag vier Stunden für jeden Kernbereich. Uh, this vision is inspired by the German Marxist feminist philosopher Frigga Haug um, in, from what she calls the four-in-one perspective, uh, which envisions a society in which both men and women have four hours a day for each of these four uh, core life activities. Und könnt ihr mal raten, was als die größte Zumutung empfunden wird? Vier Stunden Familienarbeit oder vier Stunden Erwerbsarbeit oder vier Stunden politische Einmischung? So it's up to you to decide which of these uh, is the most challenging of the areas, whether it's the four hours of wage labor, four hours of family and reproductive labor, or four hours of political work. Ich weiß nicht, wie ihr abstimmen würdet, aber viele sagen erstmal, Gott, vier Stunden am Tag Politik, wie schrecklich ist das? Das heißt, also wir müssen auch die Art, wie Politik ähm, verstanden und äh, begriffen wird, natürlich verändern. <lacht> so, I don't know how you all see it, but uh, in Germany at least a lot of people, when they hear this, say, oh my God, four hours of political work a day. <lacht> <lacht> Which also to me implies that we also need to rethink and reconceptualize how we structure political work and what political work means. Inzwischen hat die, haben die Kämpfe um Arbeitszeitverkürzung Aufwind bekommen. Das liegt auch an einer wachsenden Erkenntnis und einem wachsenden Bedürfnis, dass wirklich Männer mehr Familienarbeit übernehmen. Und ich sage das nochmal ganz klar, bei der Emanzipation geht es nicht darum, dass Frauen immer mehr unter einen Hut bekommen, sondern es geht wirklich darum, dass die Hälfte der wunderbaren Familien- und Erziehungsarbeit auch von den Männern weggetragen werden kann. Und das heißt, wir brauchen kürzere Arbeitszeiten. Okay, so in recent years, uh, struggles for reduced working time have, have been on the uptick, uh, also due to an increasing acknowledgement and recognition um, uh, on the need, <coughs> excuse me, uh, on the need for more, more uh, time for reproductive labor in the family, also for men, because to me at least, uh, emancipation does not only mean that we all, that we, you know, bring women into the workplace, but also that we structure family life so that reproductive labor can also be carried out by the other half of the family, namely the man. Und das sage ich nicht nur in progressiven Zusammenhängen, sondern auch im Wahlkampf, in konservativen Gegenden auf dem Marktplatz. Und ich sage das dann immer wie folgt. Als Mutter einer kleinen Tochter weiß ich, wie sinnstiftend und liebevoll die Familienarbeit ist. Und ich finde, wir Frauen dürfen das den Männern nicht mehr vorenthalten. Sie haben das Recht, jede zweite Windel zu wechseln und jeden zweiten Tag das Kind von der Schule abzuholen. <lacht> Okay, so she doesn't only say, I don't only say this uh, in progressive circles, but I also say this on the campaign trail in conservative uh, areas when I'm, you know, speaking in a public square. And I put it this way, I say, as, um, as a mother, I know how enriching and how meaningful it is to take care of a child. And I think that every man should also have the right to change every second diaper and pick the kid up from school every other day. <laughs> Und das Interessante ist, wenn man es so sagt, dass auch auf einem Marktplatz Männer klatschen, wo ich nicht auf den ersten Moment gedacht hätte, ach, das sitzt ja eine Gruppe von Feministen. And surprisingly, when I, when I say this on, you know, during the, on the campaign trail, pretty often men start clapping when I wasn't really under the impression that I was among a group of feminists. Also dieses Bedürfnis ist, glaube ich, auch ein Erfolg der Frauenbewegung und der IG Metallstreik, der schon erwähnt wurde, hat auch wirklich einen Fortschritt gebracht, auch wenn das Ergebnis so mittelmäßig ist. Aber das Interessante an dem Streik war, 
dass ähm, wirklich eine männerdominierte Gewerkschaft sich dafür eingesetzt hat, dass es mehr Zeit für Familienarbeit gibt. I think this, this sort of shifting attitude uh, is um, a product or a result both of the women's movement uh, as well as the aforementioned e metal strike, even if uh, I think the, the ultimate uh, compromise was only sort of you know, okay. Uh, nevertheless, it was an important milestone in that a largely male-dominated trade union put forward a demand for more time for family labor. Und diese Erfahrung zeigt uns, dass Arbeiterkämpfe, Gewerkschaftskämpfe und feministische Kämpfe eben nicht gegeneinander ausgespielt werden, sondern eng verknüpft gehören. And also demonstrates that the idea that uh, labor's demands and feminist demands are not um, opposed, but rather belong and are intrinsically uh, you know, linked. Ein zentrales Hindernis für Arbeitszeitverkürzung ist der drohende Lohnverlust. Einer Umfrage zufolge sagen 57 Prozent, sie würden gerne kürzer arbeiten, können es sich aber nicht finanziell leisten. One of the major challenges for reducing work hours is obviously the fear of uh, wage reduction. So according to a recent poll, 57% of people in Germany say that they would like to work less, but are uh, fearful that they can't afford it financially. Das heißt, wenn wir Arbeitszeitverkürzung voranbringen wollen, müssen wir zu einem bei gewerkschaftlichen Kämpfen uns für Lohnausgleich einsetzen und wir müssen die Idee der sozialen Garantien stark machen. So, uh, particularly when it comes to trade union struggles, we have to put forward a perspective of uh, rejecting wage cuts or reducing wage working hours without wage cuts and also we have to put forward the idea or the concept of a social guarantee. Seit vielen Jahren promote ich die Idee eines bedingungslosen Grundeinkommens. Nur noch mal zur Erinnerung, bedingungsloses Grundeinkommen meint, dass jeder Erwachsene, der in einem Land lebt, das Recht auf eine feste Summe hat, die ihnen sag ich mal, ein Leben über der Armutsschwelle ermöglicht. I've already been promoting the idea of a universal basic income for many years. Uh, just as a little reminder, what the UBI stands for is the idea that any adult living in a given country receives a set monthly uh, financial payment to allow them to live above the poverty line. Nur weil er ein Mensch ist und das ist natürlich sehr herausforderungsvoll, weil auch die unsympathischen Leute bekommen das. This is obviously also kind of a challenge in the sense that every human being should be entitled to this, including maybe people who we don't find so sympathetic. Aber wenn wir anfangen zu entscheiden, wer das nicht bekommt, was ist, wenn andere entscheiden, dass wir es nicht bekommen sollen? But if we were start to if we were start to wanting to decide who should or shouldn't receive it, uh, the the what would be the other possibility or the, that would open up the chance that at some point other people would be deciding whether we could receive it. Um es zusammenzufassen, ich denke, das Grundeinkommen ist ein hervorragender Katalysator für Arbeitszeitverkürzung. So to sum up, I think that the universal basic income is a fantastic catalyzer for the struggle for reducing working hours. Ein weiterer Grund, warum wir ähm, Fortschritte machen bei den Kämpfen um Arbeitszeitverkürzung, sind die Debatten um Automatisierung und Digitalisierung. And another uh, reason why reduced working hours is becoming more topical are because of debates around automation and digitalization. Automation, die, excuse me. Die Prognosen sind unterschiedlich, aber Fakt ist, im Zuge des technischen Fortschritts wird es immer mehr Umbrüche in der Erwerbsarbeitswelt geben. So, although prognoses differ, there's uh, no doubt that as technological uh, development goes on, there will be more and more disruptions in the working world. Wir brauchen also viel mehr Zeiten für Weiterbildung, aber auch Zeiten zur Neuorientierung. So we need more time both for further education and retraining, but also time to reorient oneself in the changing job market. 
Und deswegen werbe ich sehr für das Recht auf Sabbaticals. Ich habe vorgeschlagen, dass es zweimal im Erwerbsleben eines Erwachsenen das Recht auf eine Auszeit gibt, wo man auch grundfinanziert wird. So one demand that I put forward in the German context is uh, the right to a sabbatical, that every working adult has the legal guaranteed right to take at least two breaks from their working life, which are financed uh, by the state, in order to orient oneself better in the labor market. Also Sabbaticals, vier Tage Woche oder die 30 Stunden Woche, es gibt unterschiedliche Formen, die Arbeitszeitverkürzung voranzubringen. So whether we're talking about sabbaticals, the 30-hour work week or a four-day work week, there are different ways to conceptualize and argue for reduced working hours. Und was man jeweils persönlich bevorzugt, hängt auch von der Familiensituation ab. And which one one personally chooses also, of course, depends on your individual family situation. Es geht aber bei all diesen Kämpfen um eine ganz wichtige Frage. Es geht um die Frage, wem gehört meine Zeit? Und es geht auch um einen ganz linken Kampf, nämlich um die Frage um Aneignung. Um, but all of these uh, struggles have relate to one important question, to whom does my time belong? Uh, and uh, also to a core left-wing demand, the question of appropriation. Und es geht um einen Kampf um eine Ressource, die vielleicht die kostbarste ist, weil sie für uns alle begrenzt ist. Es geht um die Ressource unserer Lebenszeit. Die ist nun mal leider für alle begrenzt und deswegen sollten wir sie uns nicht einfach nur fremdbestimmt lassen. Ich freue mich, dass wir etwas Zeit zusammen hier teilen können. Danke. So it's ultimately a struggle for the most uh, valuable resource in the sense that uh, it's limited for all of us, namely the question of uh, the time of your life or how much time you have in your life, something that uh, all of us have, but all of us have a limited amount, which makes it so important. And I'm very happy that we're here to discuss this really important question. Wunderbar. Okay, David. Uh, does this work? Yeah, it does. Uh, well, thanks for having me here. I, I, it's lovely to actually hear all this because I've been an enthusiast for the idea of, of lowering working hours for many years. Is it? Oh, oh, okay. I thought this wasn't working. Um, okay, so, so people asked me to, to put this in a larger philosophical perspective. Um, And um, it strikes me that, that if you look at the history of class struggle it went, well, over the last thousand years, 2,000 years even, you know, how, what's the best indication of how the class struggle is going in a given society in, I don't know, medieval China or ancient Greece? The easiest way to, to judge it would be how many days people have to work. You know? um, when people when ordinary people are doing well, suddenly there's lots of holidays. And um, over the course of the Middle Ages, you can see very clearly after the Black Death, the population of Europe fell by about a third. Wages went way up, you know, because well, labor was scarce. Suddenly like one third of all days were, were days off. Um, and in a lot, some places, half of all days were, were saints' days or holidays of one kind or another. And if you buy any of those books about, you know, sort of calendar rituals in medieval England or um, other parts of Europe, you can see what people were doing with their time was really fun, you know? I mean, you get this <laughs> sense of a, of, of a kind of life that's been taken away from us. Every third day, there was some kind of crazy ritual going on, you know? <laughs> on this day, they built giant dragons and set them on fire. On, you know, on that day, all the women of the 
every villager allowed to form roving bands and kidnap men and hold them for ransom, <laughs> so forth and so on. And you know, there's this endless invention and creativity. And this is what they had to destroy in order to create capitalism. You know? um, and, and it was, this is like there was a, a concerted effort to destroy all this by the Puritans who were the same people who, as Max Weber and others have taught us, were these, the first people to become completely obsessed with time and using all your time to the maximum and, and who given a choice between more time and more stuff would actually go for the more stuff. Because almost all human beings who have ever lived throughout recorded history considered people like that nuts. It was a form of pathology. You know, even if you want to go off and become rich, you go off and become rich so, you know, you cash in the chips and you buy a big house and a lot of good food and dancing girls or whatever it is you like, and, and you enjoy yourself for the rest of the time. Um, and, and, you know, these were the first people who were so nuts, and, and they had to be some kind of religious fanatics, right, that they actually turned that around and started saying, no, we're going to buy more and more stuff and expand production, make more and more. There's no end to it. This is completely irrational behavior. Um, so you could look at the history of the last three, four hundred years as how they tried to ram that down our throats, to try to hook us on this idea that given the opportunity to have, you know, more stuff rather than more time, we should take the first. It's not the way anybody normally would act, um, and not the way people normally did act until quite recently. You know, if, if you look over the course of history, this is another thing, we, we have this idea that as technology develops, uh, lives become easier and we work less. Actually, exactly the opposite is the case. Uh, I'm a student of Marshall Solon's who demonstrated quite clearly that hunter-gatherers work about two or three hours a day. And even your you know, average oppressed medieval serf did, did not work a 40-hour week. I mean, that would have been completely insane. And maybe at harvest time. Um, so, so how did we get into this situation where we're just all working more and more? And especially when we're working more and more, when actually increasingly there's nothing to do. Um, you know, <laughs> my, my most recent research, and this isn't something I even intended to do, but I wrote this funny essay once that kind of went crazy on the internet, and I've been almost forced by popular demand to turn it into a research project, um, is about just meaningless jobs. People are secretly convinced that either they're doing absolutely nothing all day, um, or you know, if their entire industry were to vanish, it would really make no difference. Like most corporate lawyers, PR guys, consultants, they all actually secretly think this. Um, some polls have shown that um, 37 to 40% of all workers, there's one in Holland and one here, think that you know, their, their work makes no meaningful contribution to the world and might as well not exist. Or maybe even actually hurts people in some way. And if, the, if their job were to disappear, the world would be slightly better. And if we think about that, you know, I mean, so if 37% of all jobs are bullshit and really don't need to exist, well, think of all the people who are you know, cleaning those buildings where they're doing the bullshit or you know, providing energy to the buildings where they're doing bullshit, like doing pest control. Um, those are real jobs and real work, but it's done in support of bullshit. <laughs> and then there's the bullshitization of real work, right? There's another element. <laughs> there's a real problem we have. I mean, you know, because, like, say, I know universities best. Um, Every time they hire a new vice chancellor, you know, assistant dean or something like that, these guys feel they have 
feel they want to be treated like executives now. So not only do they get huge salaries, they get like five or six assistants that are just like thrown at them um, as a badge of honor. There's, and then they decide what the assistants are going to do. The assistants have nothing to do, so they, they make up stuff for me to do, right? So suddenly I have time allocation studies, I have learning outcome you know, analysis, and I have to do all this paperwork. Um, and this, you know, as a result, I think if you add all that together, you know, bullshit jobs, bullshitization of real jobs, like real work in support of bullshit jobs, probably 50% of the work that's being done in our society could be eliminated with no ill effects. <laughs> think about that, you know. Four day week is nothing. We could go down to a three and a half, two and a half, you know, <laughs> quite easily. Um, all right, and think about the ecological consequences. Or, um, so, so how did we how did we miss out on this? Um, one reason that this is not considered a political issue, I think, is because one of the few things the left and right have traditionally agreed on, with some honorable exceptions, as we've seen, um, is is that more jobs is always good. You know, you think about it. Like any time you see a demo, right? You know, uh, people marching down. Whatever they're against, jobs is what they're for. Money for jobs, not for war, money for jobs, not for prisons, money, you know, so forth and so on. Um, meanwhile, there's like the right-wing guy looking at them all, marching by saying, bunch of hippies, get a job, right? The one thing everybody seems to agree, that jobs are always good, you can't say bad things about jobs. If you're a politician trying to say that there should be more money for poor people, you'll say, you know, hard-working families, you know, need money. What about families that only work at moderate intensity? <laughs> they don't deserve anything? Anyway, so, so there is this cult, political cult of work, um, which really has theological background. I mean, if you're not working harder than you want to work at something you don't particularly enjoy, preferably for a guy you don't like very much, you know, uh, you're just a bad person. And people have really been propagandized to believe this. It's a deeply embedded idea. Um, and, and, and this sustains a society where essentially, I always think of Keynes back in the 30s saying we should be working a 15-hour week by around now. Um, if you look at the jobs that existed back in the 30s, it actually would have been possible. You know, because like a lot of the farmers, the domestic servants, the industrial work, I mean, it's pretty much gone. But what's happened is a clerical administrative supervisory work has, has skyrocketed. It's gone in some countries from 25% to 75% of all work. It's basically as if they're just making stuff up to keep us busy because we can't face the idea of freedom. And if you talk to people, often they'll say things like that. I mean, people, very liberal-minded people will say, well, we couldn't have too much leisure because, because crime rates will go up, addiction will go up, it'll have bad social effects, you know? With which I always reply, you know, well, we could just lock people in prison for eight hours a day and that would have the same effect. <laughs> Why don't we do that? <laughs> It's basically the same if the work is unnecessary. <laughs> so, so I think we really need a, a philosophical change about, about what work is, what value is. When people say, my work has no social value, what do they mean? What is the idea of social value? And, and this, I think, gets back to the uh, care work and, and the idea that leisure time or, or just more time off the job would mean more time for that. Um, I think that... that Increasingly, as mechanization replaces the more repetitive drudgery and what we, we think of as productive work, we need to get away from this essentially theological idea that work is production, or the value of work comes from production. After all, most work isn't production. It's actually taking care of stuff or maintaining things. 
you know, you, you make a cup once, you wash it like a thousand times. And, you know, and that somehow isn't included in people's imagination of what's useful about work. But work is really taking care of uh, uh, each other. I'd actually like to replace the labor theory of value as it exists now based on production and consumption of a new labor theory of value based on care and freedom. Why don't we imagine an economy rather than just making stuff and eating it up, making stuff and eating it up, as people taking care of each other so we can be more free? <laughs> I think moving away from this idea of work as an end in itself you know, is, is a way we can start thinking that way. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, David. Uh, yeah, I think the, the debate around socially useful work um, and how do we get rid of the work dogma is really essential here. Okay, I should note that we do have a bit more time than most sessions, so this will run to about quarter two, uh, quarter two five, uh, and maybe even a little longer. We've been allowed that from the team. I hope they've been prepped. Um, so we have now time for plenty of discussion, um, and we'll take maybe three questions at a time. Sorry, I'll, I'll move over here so I can see all these people. Um, and we'll, we've got a roving mic? Yeah, we'll. Okay, hopefully these will work. Well, they, they also need a mic, though. Hello. Okay, okay. Does that one work? One of them? Hello. Okay, great. Um, a question here, lady over here. Um, yeah, you see it? Just keep your hand up. Yeah. And then we'll go there. We'll go here. And then over there. Um, hi. Uh, I wanted to say, first of all, um, to David, uh, <laughs> I used to work at PricewaterhouseCoopers as a consultant, and um, which I'm ashamed of. Sorry, everyone. Um, and <laughs> I remember listening to you on a podcast one time describing this theory, and I was like going into my office like laughing manically because I was like, <laughs> this is it. This is it. I'm going to go and move numbers on a spreadsheet for an entire day. It means nothing. Anyway, so thank you for that experience. It, it made me feel unhinged, but also happy. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, it was definitely part of why I left. Anyway, um, <laughs> I do have questions. Uh, my questions are, how far would you like to see it go? Are we talking fully automated luxury communism? Or are we not talking quite that far? Um, shall we stay at four days? The other question I'd like to ask is, um, do you think that you'd like to see four days in education as well? Like, I guess if teachers are working four days, do we want kids to have an extra day off? What do you think about that? Those are my questions. Okay, Thanks. cool. That's one. And we had a gentleman over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's try and keep to one question, although I appreciate they were, they were good questions. Let's try and keep... Whoa. One question, please. <laughs> um, hi. I wanted to ask about the relationship between work and the built environment. So... Um, something that struck me was that, for example, you have communities that are built um, around train stations to commute into city centers. And I would assume that if people there had more leisure time, it would also require kind of, you know, more public space, more parks, that kind of stuff. So I wanted to know if you wanted to discuss that a little bit. Great question. Okay, and then there's the gentleman here, and then we'll, we'll come back. Yeah, just to go ahead. No. Sorry, can you say this? Do you want to share? No, we've got no, this one here. I'll repeat the question. Thanks. Um, yeah, I'm Paul Harnett from World Basic Income, which explains this point. Um, 
Of course, I'd support a four-day four day week, but I really do think, and thanks to Katya for mentioning it, a basic income would be far more transformational, in my opinion. It could achieve a four-day week, but it could achieve a lot of other things. It would solve the problem of all those in the gig economy at the moment. How do you get them to have a four-day week, etc., etc.? It would eradicate poverty, um, obviously enable you to refuse the bullshit job, <laughs> or, or even unpleasant jobs, and maybe those prices would rise in un unpleasant jobs. And it also redresses the gender imbalance. So I'm just shifting the debate somewhere here, I hope. Okay? Thank you. Okay, so a question about, well, two questions. One about education, whether it should, should we go to a four-day week around education? How far should we go? Kind of an speculative kind of mode. Great question about how, how does the reduction of working week relate to space? How, is, how can we actualize our free time in space and what does that mean? And then a final point saying basic income might be a more progressive uh, demand or perhaps it could be worked in conjunction. So Katya, do you want to go first and then we'll, whoever wants to answer these. Mm -hmm. yeah, sure. As far as I understood your question is, or your conviction is that the basic income is more transform transformative. Well, but that's not an argument against the four-day week because I always would say the fights for uh, sh um, shorter working t labor time and for basic incomes or social guarantees can be combined because they support each other. And the, yeah. and the question about the four-day school week, well, speaking, taking the perspective of teachers, I would say, well, they can organize the schedules that every teacher only has to work four days. But taking the perspective of a parent, my daughter just started school, I would say, okay, five days are fine. <laughs> so if I have a four-day week, um, I have one day, you know, being alone in the flat, enjoying, having not to take care. I mean, I really like spending time with my daughter, but you know... <laughs> how much you love, Some, sometimes it's just nice to have an, an hour for your own. And so I would say, yeah, a four-day week for teachers um, and a five-day for the pupils would be a nice compromise. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, great questions. Um, I think the point about, um, I'm going to agree with Katya, like the UBI versus four-day week, it's, not, it's neither one nor the other. A UBI would enable a four-day week and less. Um, so would higher wages and, um, a, and a stronger welfare state. There are all these things that come in conjunction with each other. The four-day week needs to be seen in the context of the economy and the society in which it is based. Um, UBI doesn't exist yet. Maybe one day it will. Um, but what we need to focus on is the transition towards a four-day week now. And it links to your question about what, what about beyond. Um, of course, uh, the, the kind of central thing about, I guess, the arguments around UBI and short working week are about autonomy and the time, time for ourselves. And whatever gets us towards having more autonomy over our time, I think that's a good thing. Right now, the four-day week is the next demand. And moving on from what David was saying, it's, it's, been, it's been a hard argument to make. Uh, the left for a while in this country and internationally thought that jobs and work were good in of themselves. That notion has been attacked and is being broken. I think more, more and more people are seeing work in of itself is something which isn't, isn't something that we should kind of see as an endpoint. In fact, it's 
that's a really regressive viewpoint to, to make. Um, at the same time, yeah, we must be careful about saying, of course, we need to think about wages and welfare state and the rest and how we get there. Um, but really, it's about autonomy, really, and getting there. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree, too, that UBI is, in, in a way, UBI is a more philosophically um, powerful thing if it's done in the right way. I mean, there's different, there's kind of a left wing, a right wing, and a liberal version, yeah, version of it, yeah. And I think that's important that, that if we're not talking about the neoliberal version or the right-wing version, which is about facing the welfare state, we're not talking about the liberal version, which is giving a backstop to people, but rather a radical version of UBI, which means you get enough to live on. You know, economic freedom means you're, it's up to you to decide how you want to contribute to the world. Well, that's a really radical thing because divorcing livelihood from, from you know, the means to life is... is a profound change in the nature of, of, of our basic moral assumptions about what work is and, and what human freedom is. So I think, you know, ultimately, yeah. Uh, but as an immediate demand, you know, four day week could give people more time to push for things like UBI, if nothing else, yeah. Thanks, so I'm gonna answer a couple of those questions together, because on the how far should it go question, for me, there's kind of two factors that we need to look at. One is, are there meaningful activities for people to take part in? Um, work does provide meaning to a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot. Um, and there's obviously plenty of other activities, but we need to make sure that those are being created and uh, facilitated between people. Um, and then also just income distribution. So our current model is that we distribute the rewards of the economy through wages. Um, if we were to decrease, wage, uh, decrease the amount of work we do, we either need wages to go up or we need to find another way of distributing our income. Uh, so one thing we've looked at is capital income. Uh, so could we spread capital more equally so that actually people can share in the returns to capital that is generated by the economy? Um, the one thing I'd say in UBI is that I think it would need to go in conjunction with a four-day working week because on its own, I'm not sure it changes the norms of who does unpaid work. Um, but together, I think that could potentially uh, have more norm-changing abilities. But food for thought. Yeah, well, maybe I'll pick up on the issue of um, space. I think it was interesting that you focused on the built space or the built environment because there's something that we haven't really touched upon here, which is the kind of blurring of work and life that happens anyway, which makes this kind of discussion quite difficult sometimes because many of us continue to work when we go home in a kind of... Uh, digital or, or, or other space, even psychological, you know, the kind of never switching off approach to work that, that is, has become the norm. And one response to that, I think, that exists in, in France is, uh, is, is it called like the right to switch off or something? So basically, once uh, you're home from work, you, you are allowed to turn off your email, you are allowed to no longer be connected to your workplace digitally. And I think um, that's probably an idea that, that we, can, we can build into this, this kind of discussion. Um, so yeah, I don't have much to say about the kind of built environment, but I think there's a kind of digital and psychological space that somehow needs to be delinked from, from work. Um, and then another point I just wanted to mention in response to this lady's comment about uh, that moment of realization, listening to a podcast sat in her office, um, it's a kind of example of consciousness raising that I think is a kind of crucial step in this transition. That 
I don't necessarily know how, how that will come about. I mean, it's great if you can listen to a podcast and have that moment, but generally, um, on a larger scale, how do we do that work of, of kind of consciousness raising to, to help us overcome this, this kind of assumption that um, part of the meaning of life is to work or, or yeah, there's a kind of chicken, chicken and egg um, thing to unpick there of if our life is blurring into work and our work is blurring into life, yeah, how do we, how do we start to kind of uh, overcome that idea and, and, and think about containing work in a smaller part of our life so that we can do meaningful things outside of it? Um, and I was just going to, yeah, agree with the, the point that uh, I think UBI is, is one way of doing it, but in the gig economy specifically, um, I think higher hourly wages is just an obvious way that would allow people to just choose how many hours they do per week. I mean, it's, it's a classic example of, of where the kind of agreement on how much time we should all be working um, to live healthy lives has just completely broken down. The fact that people are working round the clock in order to just make ends meet um, really shows that, that there's, there's a kind of broken model there. Um, so I think, yeah, higher pay for, for casual workers is, is a must for this transition to work. Um, that's all. Cool, thanks. I think the important point... Um, sorry. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> the, uh, David Frayne talks about the work dogma, in particular, if you, know, if you go into town centres, it's really almost structured around the work-consume cycle, right? And there's no real um, like kind of public space for actualizing that freedom. And I think, actually, you know, it's an important point to make that if we had more free time, would we just go to a town centre where there's basically benches and loads of franchises? <laughs> you know, instead, let's think about how, how we actually actualize a new, kind of, uh, a new commons of, of free time. Okay, three more questions. Um, let's take a range of voices. So... Uh, if any women who want to ask a question? Right, we've got one here, and then we'll go to this side of the room after that. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so I've only ever worked four days a week, um, and that's because I have really good employers, but I've always had really bad wages. So it's about how we manage really good working conditions, but really good pay that goes alongside that. But also how we get over the guilt I have terrible guilt that I'll walk into the office at 10 and, you know, stand from a council, be like, good afternoon. And it's like how you get rid of that thing of, you know, I work four days a week, I'm being paid four days a week and that's what I'm going to do. But the guilt that we get as workers, that if you're not working constantly, if you're not working really hard, I know you switched on that, but how do we do it within ourselves and how do I stop feeling less guilty? <laughs> Great, thanks. Gentlemen at the front here. Um, my, my question's about, does, does the way we get paid pay back into this system where we continue to try and accumulate wealth? And I'll give you a mad sort of scenario where we get paid in chickens, live chickens, right? And we need five chickens. We're going to eat one chicken. Our family eats one chicken each day of the week or seven chickens, whatever it is. It's pointless accumulating 30,000 chickens because... You can't feed them all. You, you can't keep them alive. So that, in some sense, would mean that there's more wealth to spread around because people don't want to accumulate it. So would that make us have work less? There's no point accumulating wealth because what are we going to do with it? It's going to die. Thank, no, no, thanks. I'll, 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 summarize, I'll try and summarize that when I... 
um, uh, I think there was one, one the, we'll go for the gentleman at the back and then we'll come around again. Thank you very much. Um, I'm visiting from Germany. Um, one thing I feel that people kind of have to understand is how um, destructive working a lot actually is, um, where working hours are would be considered limited. I do think that people showing the willingness to work 60 hours a week or whatnot, as maybe like freelancers, people in certain or in certain positions will do, I do think that this undermines our efforts to pay other people a living wage and to whilst enabling them to work only a certain amount of hours a week. So I do feel that we do have to sensitize people to the fact that working a lot is not good for them and not good for society. And um, the other thing is universal basic income was proposed, of course, in combination with um, uh, the reduced hour work week. I would say like a federal job guarantee would be something that could be combined very nicely with um, a reduced hour work week, just as a proposal. Thank you. Okay, so question about how does the, how does the work ethic impose a kind of guilt on those who have worked less and actually, in fact, managers also put that on them. Question about, um, like, we're, basically, we're accumulating too much and often, you know, we don't need uh, uh, to, to accumulate that much and actually we should frame it in that, in the, the, that kind of respect. Yeah. Oh right, you mean like so, like kind of as if as if the income was limited to spending it. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Living within our means, etc. And then an interesting point, which was basically that we have uh, work is so detrimental, um, and we should consider it in those terms. Um, but then also that a job guarantee might be a progressive aim, and there might be a tension between those two things. But um, maybe our panelists have to f flesh them out. Who wants to go first? So just to pick up on the, the question of guilt, um, I really like this idea for a right to a, uh, right to a sabbatical that Katja mentioned because it strikes me that that is one way of, of having time off work. So it is, it is a kind of um, stepping out of the workplace for a fixed amount of time, but it's, it's more than that because it could potentially allow you the space... Um, in your life to kind of reassess where you are, what you're doing, and uh, why you're spending all of your time in, in this job that makes you feel guilty and bad. And, um, and maybe within that kind of ask of a, of a right to a sabbatical, there could be a kind of, uh, I guess, collective element there where given that we're so poor, we're so time poor at the moment, I guess a lot of us are living quite individualistic lives, and that prevents us from having these kind of collective discussions and collective um, asks about what, you know, what we want from our lives, what we want from our working lives, and, and a right to a sabbatical that is kind of maybe uh, has the ambition for you to live a slightly more collective existence, I don't know what that might be, would be one way of kind of alleviating um, some of the, yeah, some of the, the psychological ties you have to your workplace and, and the feeling that... Um, yeah, the feeling of guilt when you're not committing everything to it. Um, on the, the chicken example, 
I think I think I, I, I think I know what you mean. Um, and I wonder whether that would be one of the one of the kind of yeah benefits generally of, of, of working less would be that you would have the time to kind of reassess where you needed to get to in life and you maybe wouldn't measure that in the same way through kind of wealth accumulation and, and otherwise. Um, so yeah, I agree. Um, so I wanted to pick up on the federal job guarantee point. Um, just because I find that proposal not very progressive potentially and quite worrying both in terms of kind of cementing the position of work as the thing we should all aim towards, um, but also, you know, even if a progressive government implemented that, they're not going to be in power forever, and that in the hands of a right-wing government, I think, could be very quickly becoming workfare, um, which would be quite dangerous. Um, the other point I just wanted to pick up on was the unions... Uh, no, sorry, my point's the unions. Your point was uh, the kind of undermining of society by being willing to work lots of hours. And I think the answer to that has to be unions. So I've had this discussion in previous jobs before um, where the kind of willingness to work endless hours means that actually you can't compete if you do have other responsibilities or you just want to go home. Um, and I think there's a kind of role to bring that discussion into solidarity um, and those other discussions. Yeah, um, I don't know. Um, I think the point about the chickens, if I've understood you right, um, is a really interesting one. I think I talked about a lot in my talk at the, at the beginning um, about um, the link between working hours and consumption um, and really about like, what does a kind of a post-material world look like and what, like, why do we, what do we do with our time and why do we do that? Um, and what, one, again, one of the questions that a four-day week or shorter, a shorter working week raises is a fundamental, fundamental question about what is the economy for? Is it to work more? Is it to buy more stuff? Or is it to raise our standard of living, however we may define that? In, in, <laughs> increasingly, that is a question about free time and leisure time. Um, and I hope I've made the case that, that we have the capacity within our economy now to work far fewer hours. And that's a political question. And it goes back to your point about guilt and work. And it links to what David was saying about this kind of religious notion that underpins work. I um, grew up in a Catholic family and I know all about guilt. Um, and, and it's a really insidious thing, this idea that work provides value. Um, it's something that underpins a particularly toxic welfare system that we have at the moment. Um, it's, it's something that says if you don't work, you don't have value as a human. And I think that's something that we have to consistently attack. Um, and there's, there's this kind of nice little bit of art at the back um, which says the work, the shirkers united will never be defeated. <laughs> uh, and that's, I'll just do a little shout out for it. It's an, um, a family of artists called Unit, and they've, their art's dotted around the world transforms. And it's a really nice little kind of anti-work politics, which, which, which is very tongue-in-cheek, but points to this, like, kind of questions that notion of work itself, waged work in particular, obviously not care work, obviously not um, traditionally uh, female gendered roles, but waged work, this kind of like very patriarchal idea of, being, of, of going home and bringing back your salary, that's what gives you value as a human. And I find that a repulsive notion that we should attack. 
Um, and it also goes all the way to the top. Like, when do you ever see, like, how many times have you seen a politician or a business person bragging about their routine, saying they get up at 3 a.m., go to the gym for an hour, um, um, have a breakfast, go to the gym again, shower, go into the office, read their emails, do, and then go to bed at 12 o'clock at night. Obviously, most of these people are, are men, and they don't really like look after their kids or anything like that, but it also kind of it creates this notion that the best people in our society are those that sleep the least. Um, and I think hopefully Elon Musk has gone some way to destroying the notion that sleeping le uh, less uh, uh, is <laughs> any idea of a good functioning human being. Um, so I think I've gone on a bit there, but, um, but yeah, it's a, it's, this idea of guilt is something which, uh, which is as a result of this structure of work um, that we have, and it's something that we have to, um, we have to challenge. I start where you ended, this uh, typical political role model. You're working seven days a week, 90 hours a week. So when I was elected as a party leader, my daughter was seven months old, and every journalist was asking me, how will you manage to be there for your daughter and um, be you know, good in your job, um, job? And I decided not even to try to excuse myself for, you know, struggling, being both mother and leading uh, in a leading position. So I said, not I have to apologize, but those male politics in leading positions who set the standards of seven days week, they have to apologize. Then they can only do this by outsourcing the care work to others. And then there was this question about the job guarantee. I regularly stand in front of an employment office, in Germany it's called job centers, and I'm speaking with people who have to live with unemployment. So I'm really sensitive to the problems unemployment causes for people. I'm not mocking of it. But I really have a lack of fantasy how a job guarantee by state could be realized. I mean, I was born in GDR. There existed a kind of job guarantee. But the way they realized it were sometimes they really invented jobs you usually would call bullshit jobs or very ineffective uh, jobs, for example. So um, if you really, a state could guarantee a job for everybody, that means the state bureaucracy must invent jobs for people. And I wonder whether this um, idea is scaring or amusing. I'm not decided yet. Great, thank you. Uh, okay, another round of questions. Uh, okay, we've got gentleman at the back, lady at the far right. So we'll start uh, not on the far right. <laughs> <laughs> there. Hello. I hope not, Jesus. Um, my, my thought is that um, some work anyway, a lot of work, we're clearing up, after, we're, clearing up bulk, we're shoveling up shit that other industries have created. You know, the NHS, social services is clearing up after, you know, like drunkenness or clearing up after, you know, gambling debts, you know, addictions, various things like that. Um, and so, you walk down the high street, you see bookies, sunbed shops, 
uh, loan shark shops, what else do you see? Off licenses, you see stuff like that. And so, you know, you think, you think obviously, do those jobs have a uh, moral benefit to the society? And, you know, I'm not being funny, but compare that to the moral benefit of like, you know, paramedics, the NHS, social services, and there's an obvious answer to that. And so, you know, we can't sort of, you know, those, oh, therefore, you know, re-employ them people into, you know, more positive industries, and it would, it would easily then enable, you know, a four-day week. Cool, thanks. Okay, great. Yeah, lady over there on the right. Um, we haven't talked too much yet about manufacturing, about jobs in manufacturing. And the, the trend is towards uh, the continental shift system, which means uh, four days on, four days off, but one day is 12 hours long. Um, and it's not healthy to work for 12 hours at, at a stretch. Um, and actually people are less, not only are less productive, uh, but there's, there's often an increase in accidents. Um, so you, you ask the question, well, why is it that, that companies move towards this? And one, one key thing seems to be that bosses need to be able to show their shareholders that machines are uh, being fully realized. So the important thing is that the factory is running 24-7. And that matters more than product productivity and more than other. It's, so it's to do with accounting systems and design of factory systems. So I think there's an awful lot more that we need to think about to tackle, um, as well as just sort of cutting the hours. Uh, and particularly this question of accounting systems and, and how, what kinds of value are valued more than others in these systems. Great question. Okay, one final question. Uh, let's go with this, this guy over here with his hand up, obviously. <laughs> Not picking random people. <laughs> uh, hi. Um, on a panel the other day, uh, Richard Leonard, the Scottish Labour leader, he was calling for to ban opting out of the 48-hour working time directive. Um, I think it's interesting, like we're talking about four-day week, but the reality is loads of people don't even stick to a five-day week. Loads of people are working six, seven days. Uh, yeah, do you think that would be too paternalistic, as we said earlier, to ban people working more than 48 hours. Great, so three questions. One's again about the socially useful value of different, different forms of work and whether we should be perhaps maybe a bit harder on those jobs and those forms of work which are uh, kind of actively de detrimental. Question about how do we account for stuff uh, and, and mm -hmm. for, for industries when we're, we're trying to shift the kind of ideology of work to something more useful, something more valuable. How do we think that through, through accountancy terms? And finally, um, what are the kind of instruments that the state should use um, in order to kind of, kind of strong arm in our working culture, whether it's the 48-hour working week, 48-hour opt-in or opt-out legislation? Uh, David, you've already got the mic. Okay. Um, well, I have a lot of things to say about that. I mean, in terms of, of useful and, and, and jobs and how they're compensated, it's been demonstrated by a number of economists um, that... If there is a general rule in our society, it's that the more obviously and directly your work benefits other people, the less they pay you. Uh, it's completely perverse. Um, and, and it seems to be an effect of this 
obsession with work as an end in itself. Like work is like this suffering that you need to endure in order to deserve your consumer toys. You know, it's the flip side of consumer hedonism. So you're supposed to be feeling pain. I mean, even I find myself saying, oh, you know, this is fun. I can't believe people pay me for it. You know, well, why the hell not if it helps other people? And um, so we have a very, very perverse structure. You know, people actually accept this kind of thing, that, that you don't want to pay people who are doing something useful as much. Uh, People will say, oh, you don't want to pay teachers too much money because you don't want people who are motivated by who are greedy taking care of our kids, you know? People say that. And you never hear anybody say, you don't want bankers to be paid too much because you don't want people who are greedy taking care of our money, although that would obviously be a more direct problem, you know? <laughs> um, so, so there seems to be this, and the same thing with austerity. I mean, people seem to think it's okay that like ambulance drivers or nurses um, or teachers should pay the cost of, a problem created by bankers. I mean, at least they accept it. Why, why were, why? And, and, and there seems to be this idea, you know, if you're doing something good, you, you're an altruistic person, good. Go be altruistic, take a pay cut, you know? Um, so, so, yeah, our system of values and work is utterly perverse and, and, and really needs to be completely transformed. Um, what was the second one about? Oh, about accounting. So, this is really interesting. Um, I. This is a fun fact I want to tell to everybody I know now that I've learned it. Um, you know, anybody know what the num total number of accountants is in our society, uh, in Great Britain? There are 360,000 accountants in this country. France has 40,000, even though it's about the same population. So that means I actually did the math. Out of every 93 workers in this country, one is an accountant. <laughs> We're talking about bullshit jobs. I mean, what are these people doing? <laughs> I, I mean, you know, a lot of them are hiding people's money in other countries and, you know, doing scams. And, and presumably that's where a lot of the money comes into this country. But nonetheless, um, you know, it, it, it's amazing. Like, it shows something about how the structure of values in our societies is completely warped. And, and, and the question is, you know, what is, is not, is it wrong, but what is the, you know, most practical Philip to remind people, bring this to people's attention. Um, I, I do think, and I want to bring this up, that um, one immediate problem I always have with a four-day week, I love the idea, is how would you enforce it on people who are casualized? You know, um, since more and more work, I mean, it assumes that people are working a five-day week for one person and you can regulate it. Uh, but so many people are now contract laborers, and how, you know, would you try to stop them if they want to work more to be able to eat, or, or what would you do? Yeah, there was the question about the ban of more than 40 hours a week. Well, I'm in favor of um, such a ban or just setting a maximum hours, working hours a week allowed. To be honest, I had problem to follow this rule in my praxis, but maybe this is the dialectics of <laughs> necessary cultural revolutions. I mean... Sometimes you have to fight against your own bad habits. Well, could we call this paternalistic? I mean, we do have laws setting standards, for example, for minimum wedge. You could argue, okay, this is paternalistic just in case somebody really enjoys working for, you know, less than the minimum wedge, but you say, no, 
they have reasons for putting these standards. And I would say giving minimum standards and maximum standards is not paternalistic, but just a question of social negotiation in which society, society we want to live and work. And the point about um, the kind of manufacturing system and the, um, the four days on, four days off, and all the kind of the minutiae of how work time is structured um, is a really, really important and interesting one. And it sort of the, it goes back to what what we argue for, which is a general reduction in work time, and it, it's a focus on the transition. And it's very, linked very closely to what Alice, the points Alice was making about putting union voices and workers' voices at the centre of that transition, because the transition will not look the same for every worker, for every workplace. It will look very different depending on the structure of that work itself. At the moment in this country, we don't have the, the five-day week, two-day weekend um, is, is, is a model of work time that um, not everyone has, far from it. But it's a useful frame through which we kind of hook that we can talk about work time reduction more generally. And what, what we want is, is, is a move towards work, less work more generally and how you support that. And it's about, I think, David's point about kind of self-contracted workers and, um, and the support that they'll need. The four-day week work time reduction is not a silver bullet. Um, it goes back to my point about it being contingent on a series of historical, social, and economic factors that also need to be brought into alignment for everyone to be able to afford to, be able to work less. So it's not something we're selling. It's just a reference point through which we to say this is, if our economy is working well, we will be able to work less, and we should be able to work less. And there are other things that need to change for that to happen. Totally acknowledge that. Yeah, just to pick up on the, the question about um, whether it's too paternalistic to set minimum and maximum standards, I, th I think it's, it's not. I think we should have minimum and maximum standards for, for work time um, and for pay, for sure. I guess my argument is it's not enough, because we know at the moment we have those laws in place, and yet they're, they're ignored. Um, and there are always ways to kind of fudge a, a corporate misuse of... Uh, employment categories like we've seen it with self-employment recently uh, where that's been completely misused to create a very uh, flexible fluid workforce that has allowed companies to, to flood these kind of new new industries new technological new platforms or whatever ways of distributing work they've enabled these companies to flood those platforms with workers which have has made a kind of collective battle to improve the, the conditions and standards of those involved really difficult because those people's jobs aren't necessarily replaceable with, with robots at the moment, but the technology has enabled uh, um, that those employers to make those jobs very replaceable just with other people. There's, a, you know, there's, there's always someone else to take the job of, of, of a, an Uber driver or a Deliveroo driver. Um, and that's why I think a couple of years ago, one of the Deliveroo branches, I think it was the Brighton branch, was calling for a recruitment freeze. And I thought that was an interesting strategy because it was, it was kind of recognizing and trying to politicize the point that uh, their leverage and their, their power was massively reduced because 
they were so replaceable. And, and one, one kind of way of um, dealing with that was to demand a, a recruitment freeze. But you could also think about um, the idea of a reduction in working hours as a way of allowing as many people to work, but you just all work less. So it's not the issue of someone else getting a job would take your job. Actually, they can work too, but you just all work less. Um, but for that to happen in these kind of casualized sectors, as, as you picked up on, David, is it, it's, it just comes down to pay again, which is why this argument can sometimes become a bit circular, because if, if these gig economy workers aren't being paid enough per hour, then they can't reduce their hours, which means they can't allow others in, into the... Um, into the company to, to do the work. So I, I think the recruitment freeze was a, was a useful and interesting strategy, but I fear it was a bit protectionist. And uh, ideally, we'd be pushing for higher wages and, and reduced work time for all so that everyone could, could kind of share in the, um, in the benefits of that. Um, there was one other point I was just going to pick up on briefly, which was the, the woman pointed out this, this strange phenomena where we have um, kind of automate, increased automation or, or factories, machines being able to do more work, but we need more people to, to staff them through the night and through the week um, to make sure that they're, they're actually being as productive of, as we claim they, they should be. Um, so it's that kind of, yeah, that irony of, of, again, robots aren't taking our jobs, they're just creating other jobs for us to do, and so we still have the role of, of ensuring that our work is, is, is good and proper and of a, of a good standard that, that people can, can live off and, and live good lives with. Um, and I was going to just mention briefly a, a Forbes list of, of recommendations of how to improve your work-life balance that I, I read a, a little while ago, and it was a brilliant example of how this issue is so often individualized and not considered in collective terms. Um, and three of the top ways that, that we should all uh, improve our work-life balance include um, stop being such a perfectionist. Just, you know, don't strive for perfection anymore, just lower your standards. Um, <laughs> It was also stop spending time with people that, that use up too much of your time and that aren't, that aren't um, I think, <laughs> basically saying, like, drop the friends that, that aren't, aren't your best mates or aren't as cool. And I just thought, like, it's a really strange approach to um, freeing up more time. Um, yeah, but that's some advice for you all. Drop some of your friends and stop being such perfectionists. <laughs> Um, I guess one thing which I think we haven't really touched on, but we can also talk about, is, is clamping down on, on overtime. So, like, higher penalties for overtime, which will incentivize companies to basically take on more employees to actually, pay, you know, take up that slack rather than get the, the employees they have to basically work through the night type of thing. That's one that we could think about. Okay, another round of questions. We've still got a bit of time. Shot straight up. One there and then one at the back. Let's go here with the jumper. Yeah, so this is a question um, related to the question about enforcement. Um, it just, it strikes me that in order to enforce a four-day week, you would need to hire a lot more policemen, just broadly, just because you know, the state would be the only one enforcing these rules, and we obviously don't do it very much at the moment, so you'd need to like, vastly expand the state's carceral capacity in order just to enforce these kinds of rules. Um, and I'm wondering what your response is to that and like, how, you know, to, can, we, can we do this without just sort of, I mean, having a, a vastly expanded carceral state? Thank, thank you. Uh, and yep, yeah, lady at the back. 
Hi, thanks very much. Um, so this is kind of a question about um, the interconnection of cultural change and legislation. So the example that I'm thinking of is where we have legislation already which would allow people to not work. So I'm thinking particularly of legislation around shared parental leave, which has a much lower take-up amongst men than women. So there are already, there's already legislation there which allows people to choose, um, but they don't choose. Similarly, when um, families have children, the partner of a heterosexual couple who's more likely to choose flexible working tends to be a woman. So um, should we be concerned that allowing people to choose means that essentially the work dogma rules the day and that men are more likely to choose to work um, longer hours, even if they're having the same pay as women and the same opportunities not to work. So is this really a question about um, cultural change? And if we introduce legislation, does it inevitably have to be, have to have an element of compulsion um, because people make choices which are fundamentally unequal? Great question. Okay, we'll just, actually, we'll just go with those two because we've only got a few minutes left. So let's, let's just answer those two questions, I think. Uh, great, well, I think they're really interesting questions to end on, actually. Um, I mean, I think for me, this has got to be about norm setting and changing the narrative rather than forcing people through a carceral state, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly. Um, and that's partly also because, um, as Aidan was saying, a four-day week, there are other models of reducing working time. It might be sabbaticals. A four-day week is a useful way to get that conversation going. Um, and then just on the other point, I think... It's really interesting what you say about shared parental leave because there are things we can do to try and shift uh, the culture and norms through legislation. So, for instance, uh, we recommend a use-it-or-lose-it paternity leave rather than shared parental leave because the evidence shows that actually men are much more likely to take it up if you make that the normal thing. Uh, so I think this is about norms rather than forcing anyone to do anything. Just picking up on that, that issue, and I think it was a great question about, you know, does legislation that allows people to choose, will that just inevitably reinforce the kind of existing cultural inequalities that we have? And I think that example of shared parental leave is a good one. I'm actually on maternity leave at the moment, believe it or not. This is how I <laughs> spend it. My baby's in the crash over at Labour Party conference and I need to go and pick him up in a minute. Um, but me and my partner uh, thought we were going to use the shared parental leave policy when, you know, uh, nine months, ten months ago when we were kind of planning... And we didn't because uh, it meant sort of taking away some of my time off work, as I saw it, to, to be with my child. And, and also it, was a, it brought with it a financial penalty for us as well. So I think, um, yeah, these kind of laws that suggest a, a choice, often uh, it doesn't mean, it, it doesn't enable a free choice because there are existing kind of material conditions from which you have to make that choice. Um, and just on the, the issue of policing, um, yeah, I guess I agree with what Karis has said, and I think, I mean, I, I think I would agree with you in saying that just because we have laws um, giving us better conditions doesn't mean we get the better conditions, and I guess that was the, the point I was trying to make earlier, and that's why we need um, a strong labour movement and trade union movement to actually play the role of, of police, as you put it, but um, I probably wouldn't use that word. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a valid point that actually um, there's a risk that the people that benefit from having a shorter working week will be the people that are kind of most able to 
to do that anyway and maybe have the time and the inclination and, and, the, and, and can afford to do it and, and the others are left behind. So yes, we do need some kind of enforcement there, but by trade unions, not police. Yeah, um, about the carceral state, it makes it sound like we're going to be locking up, you know, capitalists who, who force people to work too much. I mean, that would be great, but, I, you know, somehow I'm, I'm guessing that that's not going to happen. I mean, I mean, we've got a lot of labor laws now. I can't remember the last time a capitalist was locked up for breaking them. I, that's, unfortunately, that's not the way it works. Um, but, um, although I think that that is a broader concern that we need to think about the kind of solutions which free people and the kind of people solutions which increase the power of the state. And, and you know, reducing the weak, uh, you know, if, if, if the thing that sort of gave me pause about um, these kind of solutions it is, and why I brought up the issue of contract labor, is, is specifically because you know, you don't want to increase the state bureaucracy. You don't want to increase the state surveillance capacity. Um, you want to, and UBI, of course, would reduce it massively. But UBI combined with something like this, it would become, I think, more self-enforcing. Um, you know, curiously, if you look at the um, state socialism, um, you know, generally speaking, it was socialist unions wanted more money uh, or focused on more money and anarchist unions focused on less, less, um, work, you know, less hours. It was the anarchists who pushed for the eight-hour day, for example. Um, and ironically, the, it was the, tended to be the anarchist constituency, if you look at the famous debate between Marx and Bakunin, right, who is going to be the revolutionary, uh, who is going to actually make the revolution. It was, Marx thought it was going to be Germany and, and England, the pro advanced proletariat. Bakunin said Spain, Russia, you know, recently proletarianized peasants and craftspeople. And of course, you know, Bakunin was right about who did it. It was the classic anarchist constituencies who wanted more time, but they ended up with socialist regimes that were productivist and obsessed with like, you know, creating a consumer utopia they could produce. But what did they actually give? They gave job security. And when people had job security, they could get fired. They did less hours. So the major social benefit they actually did provide, they couldn't take credit for. I mean, it's a great irony of the 20th century. So, you know, simply getting people a position where they're secure, they can take care of the less hours themselves. There's a lot of ways to reach it, you know. Um, and, and there are ways to do it by, by enforcing things less than, rather than enforcing them more. Okay, I think we're going to have to leave it there, actually. Um, thank you very much to our panelists. If you like some of the discussion about work and free time, I believe, is, is Laurie still here? Yeah. There's, a, there's Open Democracy have released a new book called Thinking for the New Economy. There's a chapter on work and free time there. It's one pound for a pamphlet. They're just at the door. Laurie's there, standing in his lovely jumper. Thank you very much. Thanks for all the panelists. Have a good day.